Let us take up and read the Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This arguably is the greatest chapter expounding most fully the truth of the resurrection from different points of view. The whole chapter is taken up in this question of the resurrection. Paul speaks to the Corinthians who have many problems. and One of the ways that they would be united instead of divided as they were was to come together in the truth of the crucifixion of the Savior and the resurrection of the Savior. And this would surely unite the people because these are the truths that are central to the gospel and our unity is in truth or there is no unity. We want to read uh, the first verses of 1 Corinthians 15 that speak of the proof for the death and resurrection of Jesus especially. And then we want to... uh, Zero in, especially in verse 20, which is a summary of the truth of uh, and the conviction of the truth of the resurrection. And so we'll read verses 1 through 11. I want to read 20 through 23. And the last verses, 50 through 58. Hard to bring this all together. I'm not going to try, but I want to bring out different points from different sections of 1 Corinthians 15. First, The first 11 verses hear the word of God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time." For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And now we go to verse 20. And I'll explain the, what's uh, in the, uh, the intervening verses there later. But verse 20 is this great conclusion. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of all those who've fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And then you flip over to the last part, often read at funerals and at gravesides for great comfort of the saints and certainly something we uh, take great comfort in right now. 
Verse 50, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thus far we read this wonderful word of God, and may God bless us. And We know that this word abides forever, and it's a living word to sanctify us by the Spirit working as we contemplate it. The... <clears throat> text uh, in which we would focus is the first part, especially of verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And what this text is, beloved, is not just a statement that refers to the fact that Christ is risen from the dead now in this present time. It is that. We could say it too. The apostle uh, could have said it 10 years earlier. Christ had already been risen for 30 years or so. But he says it to the Corinthians in the middle of the first century. And he says it, it is now that Christ is risen. And we can say it, I say, and this is to our comfort. Because once Christ is risen, he's always risen. Now is Christ risen. We can say that. And I suppose we would say and articulate that fact also in heaven with a now as well. Now is Christ risen. That's beautiful. But now, as beautiful as that is, what the apostle is using the word now for, and the two words but now, is to draw a conclusion in contrast to what has gone before. And the verses oh, 12 and following are what has gone before immediately. And Paul is entertaining notions that there is no resurrection of the dead, and it's vain to speak that way. And then he's drawing the consequences from the, the truth or, or the supposition that Christ is, has not risen. And he's engaging in uh, um, a terrible and shameful fact. There were some people denying the resurrection of the body in general, at Corinth, they were saying, nobody can rise from the dead. And what Christ or the Apostle Paul does then is say, well, if nobody can rise from the dead, then Christ has not risen from the dead because Christ is one of the men who's born uh, of, a, of a virgin. He's a man. And so if it's impossible that anybody, any human being, any body be risen from the dead, then Christ is not risen either. And then he goes on to list the consequences of that. 
If it's not possible that anybody be risen from the dead, then Christ is not risen from the dead. But then the consequence is we've been preaching in vain. Our preaching is empty because everywhere we go, Paul says, me and the apostles, everywhere we go, we preach Christ crucified and risen. And if you say there's no resurrection of the dead and Christ is not risen and we're preaching that he's risen, our preaching is foolishness. It's folly. It's empty. It's not true. So we say in Ephesus, Christ is risen. And if Christ is not risen because nobody's risen, that's folly. If we say it to you Corinthians, if we preach it in Comstock Park or Standale, Preach the resurrection of Christ, that is, and Christ is not risen because nobody's risen. Well, well, how futile. And besides, then we preachers are found to be liars. We bear false witness. We are saying something that's not true, not of God or of anybody. Because God himself, apparently, according to these deniers, cannot raise anyone from the dead and has not raised Jesus from the dead. Well, beloved, he goes on to say then another bad consequence of that objection, if it's true that nobody rises and therefore Christ is not, if the consequence of that is this, why live anymore? Why live and suffer for the gospel's sake? Why do we do that? We're troubled on every side. And so we might well as well do as the Epicureans, the philosophers of the day whose philosophy was eat, drink, And be merry, for tomorrow we what? We die. And that's it. No resurrection. The Christian religion is a hoax. So what Paul does now is conclude or state the truth. That's what he's doing. This if it were true, would make everything vanity, everything empty, everything futile, everything a lie. But it's not true. Let me tell you the fact. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. That's what he's doing here. Right in the middle of this chapter, to be a pastor as well as a preacher and to ground the congregation in the truth of the risen Savior. We, beloved, are so blessed to have the truth of the resurrection preached here. You realize that? Gladly, there's many churches that do that. Many churches still. They haven't all gone liberal and deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're glad for that. Maybe they have some doctrinal P's and Q's that that aren't right, and it tends to compromise everything else. But when they preach Christ, they're preaching truth, that is Christ risen, and we're so glad for that. We have in this truth here, in this great conclusion, which is a declaration. I like to say this big word because it really sounds like it means something. It's an asseveration. a a doctrinal statement of truth with great conviction and seriousness. It's a declaration, and it defies all opponents to the declaration. And so Paul is asseverating. He is declaring. 
He is pontificating. He is preaching. If ever he was preaching, when he says, but now is Christ risen. Let's start there. That's the fact. You Corinthians, do not fall to the deceitfulness and the vanity of the liars who are saying it's impossible, who will never get off the ground. And they think God himself cannot get off the ground. So we have a mission here. This is a statement here which is an encouragement to us. But it is uh, a great call for us to take on this same confession. Because, beloved, you know why this world is miserable? It denies the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the risen fact of Christ. It has no solution to anything if it has not Jesus. It has no life. It has no solution to war, to civil unrest, to the fact that people don't even know what what sex they are, and all these questions that are plaguing society. But we have the answer. Jesus is risen. That's the answer. So we aim to preach that tonight, the certainty of that resurrection, the conviction of it, or the confession of it, and then the life that follows. The apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, in the first verses, is giving a very clear and detailed statement about the historicity of the events of salvation, namely the death and especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the fact that when he preached, he preached history. It happened. Jesus died. And Jesus rose. And he is risen from the dead. And we are the heirs of that wonderful gospel. That's history. And besides that, he says, this is biblical history. For note, verse 3, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so what Paul is doing is saying, this is true historically. This, is happen- this happened. Jesus died and he's rose. But it's also biblical. And it's so very important for the people to understand that because what that does is make the truth of the history of Jesus salvific and gospel truth because the Bible is written not merely to record historical facts, though it does that, and it must do that. The gospel is grounded in history, but it speaks to us of things that are significant and of weight and of the salvation of souls. So it's not just, this happened, we close the book, nice biography, nice history of the Jews. No, it's a book that's alive with the message of the history and the message especially of Jesus Christ. And when Paul therefore says, but now is Christ risen from the dead, he's not just declaring a fact and a biblical fact, but something that has all of salvation wrapped up in it. He's saying and declaring there, for example, that the death of Jesus Christ is connected to the resurrection and the truth of the death of Christ is so very important. It will not do to just to say that Jesus rose. He had to die and then also not to say that he just died and he didn't rise. He, you have to say both of them together. The truth of what the cross means 
is at stake here and is certainly declared here when Paul says, now is Christ risen from the dead. He rose from the dead and he died this death for sin. And so sin is no more. And that's the the great, wonderful confirmation that the resurrection is. Jesus is risen because God accepted his sacrifice. He would not be held in the grave because he satisfied the requirements of perfect obedience and the need to bear the wrath of God. He did it. He did it. So wrapped up in this asseveration, this declaration, this great statement that Christ is risen from the dead is Christ is crucified for sin too. Goes together. Not just as an historical and biblical fact, but as this gospel fact that rises out of the history and is the message of the Bible. So it's the truth of everything you know. God, when Paul says, now is Christ risen from the dead, he's saying, we believe in God who raised him from the dead. And God whose justice had to be satisfied. God who's holy. And that's why Jesus died. And that's why this death is significant, not just for him, but also for the first fruits who will follow, but also for everyone, even the wicked, who will rise and receive the judgment for not believing the gospel. So this statement here is a statement of all truth, of sin and of grace of the counsel of God, now is Christ risen according to the scriptures, according to history, as God planned it. We saw this this morning. Ought not Christ to have suffered and died? That's the ought of God's eternal decree, according to which, uh, which he works everything. And so you have this statement, so important, of the Christ who's not Adam but the second Adam, the greater and absolutely perfect representative of his own. This is necessarily stated when it's said that Christ is risen from the dead, a perfect man, the appointed mediator between God and man. So you have the statements here. And it's a certain fact, as history attests, the Bible confirms, and as the gospel also is written in this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's all the truth, the certain truth of God revealed in history, the scriptures, and in the good news of those scriptures. But more, Paul has said, I preach this to you. Now is Christ risen from the dead. That's what I was preaching when I was with you. And when God told Paul when he was at Corinth and preaching among them for a year and a half, be of good cheer, something like that, I have many people in this city. So Paul preached to them, and they believed the resurrection. They believed the death of Jesus. And they didn't go for the vanity. They went for the truth, the grace of God working in them. Paul says, I preach this to you, and you also received it, in in which you stand, by which you're also saved, and so on. It meant everything to them, and that leads to this point about this certainty. It's a personal conviction. 
In fact, beloved, I don't really have to preach anything to you uh, as if I were giving you new information. Now, God uses the means of grace and, and so on. But the truth is, this is the truth you know and have received and by which you stand and by which you are saved so that no man needs to teach you because the Holy Spirit teaches you of these things from Genesis to Revelation. It's true. And so that you are convicted yourself, you make this statement with the apostle. And of course, now that we preach this and this is good, we're confirmed in that faith. And we need to be. Now is Christ risen from the dead. You know that, don't you? Personally, you receive that truth. You're saved by that truth. You're enlightened by that truth. It directs you. The cross directs you. The, the resurrection life of Jesus directs you to lead the resurrection life. You see, there's something here of the great confession of all Christians of all ages that's embodied, as it were, or written down in this inspired apostle's bare statement, now Christ is risen from the dead. Now let me tell you, over against all the illogic of everyone else who can't get off the ground or Christ get off the ground, this is the truth. The scriptures testify of it. History knows it. It's the Bible. It's the gospel. And you're saved by it. It's as certain, we say, children, as the nose on your face. More certain than that because these things abide. These truths abide. Jesus lives forever. And this is this dynamic energy of truth of which the apostle is speaking. There's a conviction here. It's from heaven. It's like a lightning bolt hits you, and you're not dead, but you're energized to light up a whole world and your own world because the truth has gotten a hold of you. And as we'll see presently in application, that means you don't fear death. That means you're not going to live this merely earthly life and just be happy with things below. You're not going to grieve as those who have no hope, even if you have to lay a loved one in the grave. You're not going to do that. You grieve, but with hope. The hope of the resurrection of the body based on the resurrection of Christ's body. This is our certain conviction, and it is indeed a confession that we make by faith. Have to. Because what we see is ugly and nasty, isn't it, in this world? And even if it's good, even if they're the leeks and the garlics of Egypt, we know they don't satisfy. This is a, conf a confession of an apostle who gave everything up, endured the beasts of Ephesus, was oftentimes beaten, cast away, and all of these things, rejected by the Jews and by the Gentiles together for Christ's sake. And everything was worth it, everything. 
So we confess by faith something we don't see, even though Paul says it's true because the scriptures say it's true, and and the gospel we know is so wrapped up in this, but we're believing this. Even reading this, children, you have to know this, just reading the scripture doesn't do something for you. God must do something for you in giving you eyes to see or eyeglasses, or whatever, but that's what faith is. So you, you can be connected to this Christ, joined not at the hip only, but at the heart with the Savior and his death and his resurrection. So that you can confess this even in this vain world. You see... The objections that are brought by those who deny the resurrection of Jesus are themselves vain objections. They're empty, they're futile, they're powerless objections, and they're lies. And it comes out of a world that just does this. It's a vain world. So they can't get off the ground in their reasoning. So Thomas Jefferson cuts out the miracles out of the Bible, and I suppose he cut out the miracle of the resurrection. Smart people who are only smart according to their own smarts are vain people, and they do not have the wisdom of God and the faith of a true believer. But this is what we're up against in this world, and increasingly, science has said it's impossible that anyone would rise from the dead. People call materialists or those that say matter is the only thing that matters. What you see is what you get. Paul is speaking of those kinds of people when he says, if the dead do not rise, let's just be like them, eat and drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die, and that's it. You're just done. The Sadducees in Jesus' days denied the resurrection and Oftentimes, they were found to be the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Go figure. The Pharisees denied the resurrection because they denied Jesus, and they denied his crucifixion and everything else about Jesus as well. And so you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and in the midst of all the vanities of the world and those who have degrees in vanities. And far, far worse than underwater basket weaving, degrees in that vanity and foolishness, are the degrees that men have in philosophy and in their own uh, scholarly pursuits that portray they don't know anything about heaven, going to heaven, and resurrection. These are the same kind of people who said that the apostles, well, they stole the body. He didn't rise. The same kind of people today who, who identify the apostles as under uh, hallucinations. They were hallucinating. Or they say there was a severe depression that let in when their Savior died and he, there, there was his demise and their hope was abolished and so they were, they were psychotic. And that was the power of this demented mind 
of the beginning of Christianity. And by the second generation, it had taken over and infiltrated the world. And here we are today, the results of this psychosis and these hallucinatory people. And all of our preaching is just in vain. That's what they say. Ephesians 5, we're told the truth of this vain people. This I say therefore, Ephesians 4, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Note that phrase. Vanity, emptiness, leads to lifelessness even while you're walking. It leads to this futile pursuits, these, these futile pursuits, this emptiness, this purposelessness. And so what they do is they, um, they walk in the futility of their mind and they're alienated from the life of God. Now, hold, that, hold on to that right now. You realize that what billions of dollars are being spent on in America today, well, it's the pursuit of the discovery of life on Mars or having some kind of space station on the other side of the moon in the hopes of finding life on other planets. And I just heard as well, there's a project among the elite called the Genesis 2 Project. The Genesis 2 Project is a project to which people hope there's trillions of dollars spent to create artificial intelligence, AI, to the nth degree so that we have veritably a kind of life in the place of human lives that can decide things for us and get things done and reason things through where it would take us a millennia to do. Beloved, this is all because people don't know what life is and they don't know what the God of life is and they certainly have no room for uh, a teaching that says there is a life only through the life of Christ who is dead. And they certainly don't understand what life is for us and that's the fellowship with God. The reasoning of faith, of course, is so different. And if we could, again, just go a little bit into that whole concept of futility and vanity, I want to point out to you the book of, about vanity in the Old Testament. You know what that is, children? What, what book talks about vanity and vanity? Ecclesiastes, right? And so the preacher there says, Everything under the sun is vanity and vanity and vanities. And he tried everything. I tried having fun and pleasure. That's vanity. I tried being successful. I'm going to put away my toys and I'm going to work for a living. That's vanity. I tried to be wise with worldly wisdom. That's vanity too. He said all these things. He tried everything. And Solomon's the wisest, richest, and happiest outwardly man in the world. And he says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Everybody from apes to chimpanzees and to giraffes and people, they all die. One thing happens to them all, and what are we here for? 
That's everything under the sun. Life under the sun. Beloved people of God, when Paul says and we say, now is Christ risen from the dead, we're saying there's life beyond the sun. Life above what you see. Life in the heavens. Life in the glory realm of God who is eternal, who is spirit, who is above all life. And this, beloved, is the glory of our confession. Jesus is risen and we are delivered from the vanity into life and fellowship with God. So let's declare this. Let's declare this. Life is more than self and stuff and more self and more stuff. It's about the Savior who lives. Getting a life, and when they tell us to get a life, that's unknown to us because we have a life, the life, because of Jesus who's the resurrection and the life. Confess that. And be not deceived. Verse 33, look at this. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good manners. That's just after the people who think there's no resurrection said, let's eat and drink and for tomorrow we die. You know what can happen to us? Our faith can be whittled down by our companions. And oftentimes it's not outward unbelievers and people that we go to the bars with, though it can't be that. We ought to avoid that, uh, making worldly friends in a worldly way, even though we try to win them. But it's oftentimes what media we listen to, the games we play, and, and the things we're sucked into because people have, and the world has a way of weaning us away from Jesus, you see? Weaning us away from the life that is in him so they want us to live with them and they want us to die with them. Be not deceived, the apostle says. You Corinthians, you got all these problems in your church and one of the problems is you live in Corinth where to Corinthianize is to prostitute yourselves. Or philosophically speaking, it's to be vain in your thinking. And I'm saying to you, the gospel is blown into this town and you should never be the same. And your confession should be of Christ crucified and risen. And there should be a life to follow. This is my final point, beloved. And while we know it's not this, if we believe in the resurrection, you believe that, don't you? really, then we're not going to be saying to ourselves, let's eat and drink and tomorrow we die. That's it. Let's keep the ministers away and those radical Christians who not only confess Jesus but live for him. They're a thorn in our flesh. That's what the unbelievers say. And don't don't make a big do about my funeral. Maybe just cremate me. Say a word, maybe over my grave. Rest in peace. The vanity of that is most rest in unrest. But we have a life, and we ought to live a life. The apostle, the very last words of all this doctrine, 
after he's spoken of the great mystery of our bodies changed and the great victory of over death and the grave. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and then the great therefore. The great conclusion of the man who's a man of conviction, now is Christ risen from the dead. Therefore, therefore, let's, let's press on in the life of service and godliness and reflecting the image of God. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Don't prove by your inaction and by your unbelief that your faith is vain. Don't prove that your conviction is just a mouthful. Prove to yourself and to the world, Christ is risen, and I'm an example of that. I'm saved by him. I live because of him. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So eat and drink and be happy and holy, of course. In Jesus, serving God, leading the true life, not the vain life, a life of integrity and fruitfulness, this kind of life in Colossians chapter 3. If you're then raised with Christ, because he is, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, having risen there. Set your mind on things above, not on things in the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Understand that. Christ is our life because he lives. We also shall live with him. We're the harvest of which he's the firstfruits. We're the saved of which he's the savior, the sheep of which he's the shepherd, the friends of which he's the friend. And this way we witness by the victorious, thankful, very busy life serving God, not self, living the life of leisure, living the life of a servant. What a time to witness. I've, ever, I've always been saying since COVID, what an opportunity, <laughs> not to get sick, but to declare what life is. Because Jesus lives. Because he didn't die in vain. Because we're forgiven. Because the Holy Spirit's poured out. What a life we have to share. And a Savior we have to honor in speaking of him. One person has said, we live in an age of existential sadness. Now, I'm not sure what existential means, but it sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? It means pretty big sadness. Uh, we have sadness uh, coming out the pores of people. Sadness and desperation, and, and desperate attempts to live, to lengthen the weekend. So it's Friday, Saturday, and they include the weekend on Sunday, and they go back to Thursday, and Monday's a day of recovery from their binges. They are missing the life, of course. Another has said uh, that never before has the world been so frantically committed to the idea that no answers are possible. And I want to leave you with that. 
We live in this world where nobody thinks answers are possible. The answers of another life. The answers not that there's life on Mars, but there's life from heaven. The answer that the Bible has, the answer that Resurrection Sunday gives to us, and the opportunity to convict people by the word of God, the sword, that they need this life, and to encourage ourselves to live this life. See, this world has no answers to sin and death. They have no answers to their problems, to their broken marriages. Oh, we'll just have to, have to get rid of each other after 20, 40 years. You know what that's being called now. People are actually divorcing and then getting remarried after 20, 40 years of marriage. They're calling it the 40-year itch. Everybody needs another opportunity to live another life with somebody else. Nothing about commitment. Certainly not about the picture of marriage of Christ and his church, the faithful husband, the faithful wife. There's no answer to the problem of feelings that people have and that they're hurt. And there are feelings that are hurt, and there are many injustices in this world. I have no answers to them because the answers are given in the gospel where the justice and the mercy of God meet together. And there's no answers, therefore, to people who are so confused they don't even know who they are. They have to identify with that person and another person, but not with themselves. Because somehow sinful people lost and wallowing in their sin, they know they're dead They know there's nothing. And so they accumulate this and that and the next thing or avoid all kinds of serious conversation. And certainly the gospel. And my beloved brethren, with the Apostle Paul, I would say to you, believe the word of the Lord that's declared to you today. Jesus Christ is crucified for your sins and risen. This was joy to the two men of Emmaus. It's joy to us as well. It's also fullness, the fullness of life, the fullness of God who fills all things in all, the fullness of joy. So we're no longer empty. Whatever we do, we're serving the Lord. Notice what Paul doesn't say here is, make sure that you serve God in the ministry, some specialized form of service. No, he says, what you do, know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Abound in his work, whatever it is, mothers or fathers, businessmen, students, those who work with their hands or with their minds. Do it heartily as to the Lord. Live for him as you work. Complain not and be glad and thankful. And abound, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the risen Lord Jesus. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless us and help us to rise up from the worship to serve you. We heed the call from this message of a a declarative apostle and a defiant one who takes on the world, and we would rise up with him and join the mighty throng of confessors of Christ who's risen and of those who live, yes, for eternity and even now enjoy the
the foretaste of resurrection life for Jesus' sake. Give us hope and give us joy. Give us power from on high, Lord. Give us not to be dissatisfied with our lot in life, but to be glad in the place you put us, the circumstances through which you lead us. Glad for our children, glad for our wives, our husbands, glad for our single life, glad for our church, and glad for our place in the kingdom of heaven. Christianity, what a great religion, only because Christ is the greatest Savior of them all. Thanks, Lord, for Jesus, for raising him to glory and for the prospect that we are to follow. Amen.